Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us now is my good friend, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Dave, always an honor and pleasure having you on the uh, program. Thanks so much for joining us, especially in the busy days uh, as you guys uh, head into the final uh, uh, strokes of the uh, Airspace Cyber Conference next week. Well, thanks very much, Vago. It's uh, great to be on and uh, have the chance to give your audience a bit of a preview about uh, what's going to happen next week. Uh, it is a uh, terrific uh, conference. Uh, it is a uh, centerpiece. Uh, and obviously, uh, it is the first as the uh, what was the Air Force Association's rebranding, or I should say the Air Force Association's rebranding as not just the Air Force, but the Air and Space Force uh, Association. Uh, and certainly, uh, space is going to feature much more prominently, even though I think that you guys have always had a tremendous representation uh, on space. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo BRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. What are some of the broad messages, uh, Dave, we're going to be hearing uh, from Air Force leadership. Obviously, it's an important time. Uh, the Global Air Chiefs Conference is also happening uh, in proximity as well. So we're going to have a lot of international leadership there. What are some of the broad themes and messages we're going to hear over the three days next week at the Gaylord? Well, first, Vago, I think it's important that the audience understand the overarching theme of the conference, and that's America's Air and Space Forces yesterday, today, and tomorrow, 75 years in the defense of our nation. Um, the, this is the 75th anniversary of the United States Air Force, and this conference is on track to be the largest in recent history with nearly 15,000 people um, signed up already. Um, it's going to be a working tribute uh, to the great men and women that have made our Air Force and Space Force the greatest in the world. Um, but that said, uh, Vago, it's telling that as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Air Force, um, it's now the smallest, oldest, and the least ready that it's ever been in those 75 years. And uh, frankly, that's the result of neglect by the Department of Defense leadership over the past three decades and prioritization of the Army and the Navy and even other DOD agencies over funding the Air Force to the degree necessary to modernize and maintain its forces. So, uh, you know, it's important to understand that the Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy for 30 years in a row now. And for nine of the last 10 years, it's even been funded less than other non-service DOD agencies. So one of the discussion topics and panels at this conference that'll go into more detail in revealing these facts We'll have congressmen from both parties on it to discuss their congressional perspectives. And that panel is going to be on Tuesday, the 20th at 4 p.m. in room Potomac D. Now, there are many, many other topics. And I know you want to, to talk about uh, sort of the general uh, highlights, but I think the one I just went over is extraordinarily important. It's, it's absolutely critical. And that's uh, a case that you uh, have been making for very many uh, decades. You know, even though there is a focus from the senior leadership uh, that air and naval power are going to be critical in the Pacific, uh, ultimately, we're paying the price for uh, decades of underinvestment 
uh, in the capability. And as a consequence, we keep shrinking uh, the combat air forces. And indeed, if you asked our French or British allies, they would also, uh, you know, I think many Americans would be surprised how small their air forces have grown uh, as well. One of what we're going to be hearing from uh, the USAFI commander, the United States Air Forces, Europe and Africa commander, uh, new in the jobs, having succeeded Cobra Harigian. And we're going to also hear from cruiser uh, Wilsbach uh, on the Pacific. First, let's start with uh, Russia. What are we going to be hearing from uh, Scorch Hecker uh, in his in his first outing as as the USAFI commander at AFA? Well, um, what he's going to be talking about um, are all the elements um, that need to be considered, uh, not just from what's going on immediately with Ukraine, but what NATO uh, in the United States have to be prepared uh, for encountering Russian aggression. Um, I think this has kind of been a wake-up call, uh, and you've seen the U.S. national defense strategy get put on hold. Uh, it's supposed to be released in the spring. Russia invaded Ukraine, and now there's been some modification to it, uh, and for good reason. Uh, and I think you'll hear General Hecker um, uh, provide some insights uh, into what he's thinking about and doing uh, to make sure that uh, NATO and the United States can work together uh, to deter uh, any future Russian aggression. You know, I, I just want to uh, follow up on uh, Europe, uh, for example, and you said like some of the other attributes and elements of this that we need to consider. So I'm going to ask you to put your uh, analysis hat on. Um, all U.S. Uh, forces have played an incredible role, whether it's folks on the Transportation Command side of it, uh, whether at Air Mobility Command, uh, whether on the combat air forces, army units, uh, naval units, everybody has been playing, uh, not just as the United States, but as well as with the entire NATO team uh, to help Ukraine defend its territory. And the last sort of 48, 72 hours have been extraordinary. Um, what, do you, what are some of the takeaways from your uh, standpoint uh, and, and how senior uh, air force leadership and defense leaders are looking at this period uh, and sort of the keys to Ukrainian progress uh, and, and the rapidity of progress and what it tells us about our Russian adversary? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful question. And there have been uh, lots of prognostications out there and analysis that I think have been jumping to lots of conclusions um, that may not be warranted. Um, um, but, you know, before I go into my perspective on some of the details, um, Americans have a tendency to mirror image. Uh, and you know, you have folks out there going, well, why didn't the Russians uh, do a better job in achieving air superiority right off the bat? Um, well, they're, they're making the presumptions that the Russians have the same kind of doctrine, background, and experience that we do, because we certainly wouldn't have approached this the way the Russians did. You know, many expected them to execute the way the U.S. and our allies would with cogent air doctrine based on an offensive spirit and understanding of the importance of air superiority. But in fact, they do not have the same air doctrine as the West. They do not have the same level of training. They suffer from severe incompetence and extraordinarily poor leadership. It, the reason is the Russians have never used air power in pursuit of strategic objectives in their entire history. So they don't know how to best exploit it. They've only used it as an extension 
of artillery of their ground forces. Now, conversely, the Ukrainian Air Force has had an indoctrination on Western air operations and strategy, along with commensurate training on tactics, techniques, and procedures to accomplish those operational and strategic objectives by years of partnership, actually decades of partnership with an American Air Force air superiority unit flying F-15s from the California Air National Guard. So, you know, I think these are some of the considerations that even though they're not as, do not have the same capacity as the Russians, their philosophy, the employment of their air power has uh, really uh, been a match for um, the Russians' very poor performance. Uh, and, and you would argue, right, when it comes to senior levels of the Russian military, you don't find many airmen who are in uh, leading uh, operational command roles. It tends to be generally uh, ground force guys. Um, no, that's me, exactly right, because the Russian military is optimized to slug it out on the ground. Right. And, and, and so by fighting from the air uh, smartly, um, Ukraine realizes that it can turn that advantage around, and it's been doing that to the extent that it can given its very small air force, which is a whole nother issue um, of the, uh, another discussionary, and that's the need to supply um, and recapitalize the Ukrainian air force with Western aircraft. Um, and uh, we will uh, get to that uh, in a moment, uh, but I would uh, agree with you. And fortunately, the United States is providing uh, not just the intelligence, uh, surveillance and reconnaissance uh, information, as well as uh, the, the groundborne uh, strike systems, but that we do have to do better on that. And I want to get to that in a minute. But but, but before we get derailed from what is the purpose uh, of our conversation, which is uh, the conference next week, uh, we're also going to be hearing from cruiser uh, Wilsbach, uh, who is the Pacific Air Force's uh, commander. Uh, and we can see time and again, uh, at every level, uh, senior folks in the administration talking about the importance of uh, air and sea power, particularly in the Pacific, with a very important role uh, as well for uh, ground force forces and marine forces, ultimately, not, not to leave them out from this equation. What do you think uh, are going to be some of the messages that we're going to be hearing from, from Cruiser and his team uh, as they really are shifting to an entirely higher gear in terms of uh, operations, training, and indeed greater uh, voice in acquisition? And I want to ask you about that in a minute as well. Yeah, well, um, as you and your audience are very well aware, um, the Department of Defense has declared China as the pacing threat. Um, and our Secretary of the Air Force has gone so far as to say, if it doesn't contribute to the China, a potential China fight, he's not interested in buying it. Um, so that's, it's a pretty stark statement. Uh, General Wilsbach is faced with some enormous institutional challenges in the Pacific. I mean, the, that theater has run, been run by a naval officer since its inception. Uh, and there needs to be a little bit of modernization in terms of thinking. Um, folks are fond of talking about, well, you know, the Pacific is 70% uh, covered by water. And when they do say that, I like to remind them that 100% of the theater is covered by air and space. And so the principal element, although certainly naval forces will play uh, a critical force, uh, a part in any kind of a conflict there, particularly the submarines, 
um, you know, air power is going to play a leading edge role because it can actually conquer that tyranny of distance. You know, you want to conquer 16 time zones. You do it by going 600 knots, not 20 knots. Um, and there requires, there, there's a necessity to put into place survivable, resilient, and reliable command and control capability overarching all of our forces to be able to optimize the integration of one with the other. So that speaks um, to the necessity uh, to speed up uh, the actual transition toward a joint all domain command and control system. Um, it's time to get beyond PowerPoint and start producing viable capability. And I think these are some of the themes you'll hear General Wilsbach talk about. You were one of the fathers of JADC2. You have been consistently talking about the importance of cloud combat and actually getting uh, the, the architecture right. And we've heard from the chief as well, right? Um, we can be integrated by design if we get the architecture right. And then the plugging in of those things become easier. The administration's uh, position on this now is, you know, vest greater authority uh, with the commanders in the Pacific in terms of shaping this. And then it goes directly to the deputy CIO uh, at the department who becomes the point person, right? I mean, this is a way to sort of break through the logjam because everybody, you know, if, if nobody's in charge, literally nobody's in charge, uh, right? And if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Do you think that this approach is the right one as somebody who's been visualizing, writing, and theorizing about this for yeah, well, let me be almost blunt. as long as the, I know you? Yeah, well, let me be blunt. Uh, the deputy CIO ain't going to cut it. The champion for JADC2 needs to be the Secretary of Defense. At every staff meeting, every weekly meeting, every meeting he has with the leadership of the services, he needs to ask, first question out of your, his mouth, how's it coming along with moving forward on actualizing joint all-domain command and control? I understand he's not the architect, but the services are only going to listen to the Secretary of Defense. So he needs to become the champion. Um, you, you know, there's certainly services aren't gonna listen to a three-star on the joint staff. Uh, and so we gotta move out and all of the services need to understand the priority of this particular issue for all the reasons you just very well stated. Um, and uh, right, I mean, that, to give uh, credit to uh, Mark Esper when he was Defense Secretary, right? I mean, his whole focus was what are we doing to move the China ball uh, forward uh, today, you know, what, what have we uh, done uh, and first himself in the technical details of everything from hypersonics on to, uh, you know, other uh, programmatics. Um, one of the more important capabilities that we are trying to develop is the future of manned uh, and unmanned teaming. Uh, Dave, um, you have always also been a champion since the early days of your career when you and I met when you were a lieutenant colonel, um, was to try, you know, was, was to tap on manned systems, uh, use them, and, and sort of what does that future man unmanned architecture look like? Uh, are we on the right track? I know that this is something Secretary Kendall has been talking a lot about. Um, we've had uh, leaders talk about it. We've heard it from the chief as well uh, in terms of how to do it and how to sync everything that we're developing with those of our allies and partners. Do, do we have as clear of a vision on what we want this manned unmanned teaming to look like, particularly for the combat air forces? The short answer is no, we don't. 
um, there's a lot of enthusiasm about what's now being called uh, collaborative uh, combat aircraft. But there's not a whole lot of definition and explanation or identification of an operating concept of how we do this. So um, I, you're gonna see one of the panels talk about this in the context of moving forward. Um, but I'll give you a summary of some of the things that need to be addressed. How to optimize the composition of human in collaborative combat aircraft teams. Uh, this is a lot more than just thinking about um, these aircraft, these uh, uninhabited aircraft as being mere elements of inhabited aircraft. We, if we really want to exploit artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning, um, we need to identify the relative strengths and weaknesses of humans and these kinds of aircraft to build the right kind of teams. Uh, in order to do that, we've got to include operators in the development of collaborative combat aircraft and provide them the tools um, that they'll need to understand just how these aircraft are going to perform in the battle space. Um, we haven't done that yet. Um, we have to be able to develop uh, uh, collaborative combat aircraft autonomy to a degree that warfighters will be able to trust them and depend upon them. We're not there yet. And at the same time, since artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to be involved, um, warfighters must have assured control over these aircraft in highly dynamic operations. Um, now, you know, they, they, these aircraft have got to be able to responsibly and proactively communicate with the humans involved to assure control. This is a whole nother huge issue. And then there is the, is, the, is the topic of ensuring that these teaming workloads are manageable um, for humans. Uh, because as you know, um, there's a lot of friction inside of their own cockpits. And as the task load increases in complex battle space operations, um, they've got to understand and these aircraft need to be designed to be able to collaborate with and act to support the human element. Uh, so technologists have to collaborate with the warfighters to kind of develop the intuitive or human interfaces that are intuitive to optimize uh, the teaming with uh, collaborative combat aircraft. Is there, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, there's the loyal wingman, Secretary Kendall was in Australia and talked about there being a potential role uh, for the Ghost Bat, the Loyal Wingman program that the Royal Australian Air Force and and just shout out uh, to our allies down there because you know through Project Jericho and a couple of things there is some really cutting edge air thinking that's been happening down there um, that that is uh, just really uh, terrific. Um, you know, do we do we need Dave to sort of go back to the past because I mean if you think. Um, during the Cold War, for example, B-52s had quails, uh, right? So that was an, a man-unmanned teaming situation where uh, a drone that would come off a bomber would be able to uh, send uh, the right kinds of electronic emissions, make that formation look differently, head in a different direction, and all sorts of things. I mean, throughout history, we've done some pretty sophisticated things with unmanned systems. Um, 
you know, are there elements from the past that we need to be tapping uh, as we sort of chart uh, the future? Um, uh, you, you, your discussion reminds me of a saying that I came up with when I worked in the Air Force Doctrine Division, uh, and that's that doctrine should guide our future, not preclude it. So the, the manner in which we employed uh, uninhabited vehicles in the past ought to be taken a look at, but they shouldn't preclude the opportunities that um, are vastly more potentially capable, uh, integral to being able to integrate automate, uh, artificial intelligence um, with uh, automation. And, and, and so, you know, back to kind of where you began your uh, question, um, I hope that the Air Force buys some of these aircraft, um, uh, uninhabited aircraft, uh, sends them to Nellis and gets them incorporated into the operational exercises that occur so we can start learning and doing some of the, the partnership with the operators, not just the technologists, uh, to build the kind of future that I kind of outlined in answering the questions um, that I addressed. And, and that's the way we're going to make progress here, not just simply replicating what we've done in the past. Uh, let me just... With um, newer stuff. Uh, let, let me just move uh, quickly and just follow up something on JATC2, which is um, one of the questions that Secretary Kendall has said over and over again, uh, which I think is relevant, is, look, what is it we're trying to do? Because at one point, we were trying to connect everything. Uh, and that was an overly optimistic model. What, what do you need to connect? And what's the surest and best way to connect them? From your standpoint, what is it that it needs to do, right? As somebody who was the head of Air Force uh, uh, Intelligence as well, what does yeah. it need to do? What, what is it that JADC has to be able to do and what are things actually it doesn't need to be able to do because we were trying to do this sort of all things to all people approach it seemed uh for a while without enforcing any discipline right so we weren't telling uh you know i, I think the the air force and the army at least were on the same sheet but the navy abundantly pretty early on said look i've developed my own systems and we'll connect these downstream right um and and so the thing sort of fell apart um, you've addressed the leadership part of this. What is it that, it, what does it have to be able to do and under what stress does it have to be able to do it? Um, okay, short answer. I'm gonna give you a non-sexy answer. Um, we can talk about thousands of different potential applications, but fundamentally what it has to do is provide ubiquitous and seamless sharing of information. What that means is that you have to have assured connectivity. So services get on it, provide the hardware and the architecture to ensure assured connectivity. That's the first step to realizing any of the other potential PowerPoint applications that have been proposed. All right, that's not sexy, but that's what has to be accomplished. And this doesn't mean the next best generation of data link, because we need to think about going beyond radio frequency into alternate and additional modalities of communication to get to that level of assured connectivity, which is the fundamental basis 
of sharing information. Once we can do that, we can address how we parse the matching of information to be able to provide a reasonable uh, delegation to a particular regional set of players across all the service components. See, this is what's key. The services are developing the systems, but it's the combatant commanders who will be operating and directing all of the service components. So therefore there's a fundamental requirement for interoperability so that the combatant commanders can use this architecture to effectively command and control multi-service operations across all domains. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, uh, weapons, uh, weapons stocks and inventories. Um, we are depleting stocks very rapidly. It's a much more profound issue for our allies and partners, but we're running low on stingers and javelins. Uh, we're still providing them uh, for our allies and partners, um, but we are running low. And if you participate in war games, we were uh, uh, honored uh, that Mark Kansian of CSIS allowed us to participate in his war games. I know that you participated in that as well. Um, and we were just we would just run out of LRASMs, the long range uh, anti-ship weapon. We would run out of JASM ERs. Uh, and it's not abundantly clear that we have a very good roadmap. Uh, and I know that AFA is always a great opportunity to frame issues and for senior leaders to deliver, deliver messages uh, to industry. What's the right, uh, and, I, and I know the chief has looked at integrated by design as playing a role in this so that we can all have maybe a broader diversity of weapons and systems, but actually get them to some common core architectures that allow them to interconnect. From your standpoint, uh, as leadership tries to message this, what's the kind of approach that we need to have on the weapon side? It's great to have the platforms, but if you run out of bullets, you're out of Schlitz. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And I tell you right up front that weapons and munitions have absolutely zero constituency or advocacy during peacetime. Most often, service programmers go to weapons and munitions accounts and raid them uh, or use them as offsets for funding other preferred programs. This has occurred in the Air Force um, uh, for decades now. And I go back to my opening statements. The reason for this is the Air Force has been underfunded for three decades now, and the weapons and munitions accounts have suffered. Um, now, let, let me add, again, examples I think are useful here. Um, you know, during Operation Desert Storm, uh, that was essentially about a 45,000 aim point operation that was executed over 43 days. There were over 1,200 strike sorties occurring every day. What we've become used to in more modern times with Operation Inherent Resolve, operations against the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, um, were less than a dozen strike sorties a day. A handful of uh, desired mean points of uh, impact. And yet, um, you know, we were running low in munitions to execute that level of operation. Now, if you skip to the future and you look at a potential South China Sea scenario or a European scenario, you're not looking at 45,000 aim points. You're looking at on the order of 100 to 200 or more thousand aim points. I mean, look, let's look at the reality of just what happened in um, Iraq and not Iraq, but in uh, um, Ukraine and Russia. There were some days not too long ago where the Russians 
um, we're launching 65,000 munitions a day. Right. So this is a, an enormous area that needs to be focused upon. And, you know, I keep on, I, I regret hitting the same uh, button here, but if we're not resourced for it, um, we're not going to get the munitions. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And again, uh, the asterisk you're putting on this, Russia has not yet mobilized uh, its forces. Uh, and it also still has vast stockpiles of munitions. Uh, and it also has vast numbers of airplanes. So when folks go, oh, eight airplanes were destroyed in Crimea, that's the tip of the Russian Air Force iceberg. Um, so, um, you know. Yeah, we're just fortunate that they're as incompetent and have such poor leadership and, and poor training. And, and that's, you know, that's the lesson of what happens if you neglect those key elements. And so, I mean, I, I've seen people come up with all kinds of prognostications of, oh, this changes the nature of warfare. No, it doesn't. Look at the reality of what's going on. Uh, right. And imagine if um, the Ukrainians had the kind of force that they could achieve air superiority over the Russian forces within the first 24 hours. Imagine how quickly the tide would have turned as opposed to six months, it would have happened within the first week. That's the lesson. Uh, let me ask you uh, one last brief uh, question. Um, the chief has been uh, on a, a very admirable drive and several service chiefs have been driving culture change. Jim McConville has been doing that uh, remarkably successfully after a dozen years in the United States Army. Um, you're looking at David Berger, who's been doing that in the United States Marine Corps. And indeed, uh, the Air Force has been focusing on this issue. Uh, 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 Fingers Goldfein, uh, you know, certainly was tackling elements of culture change as every chief does. But uh, General Brown has really been focused on this in terms of moving the needle, distributing more. Um, you know, don't ask for permission, execute. If you've got a good idea, shout it out uh, and, and, and adopt it. Uh, as somebody who's lived their life uh, in the United States Air Force and observing it, um, is this is are things changing as quickly as they should? Because I think even the chief would uh, would admit that it's not moving as fast as he wants it to move. Um, but talk to us about the beneficial changes you're already seeing uh, as uh, uh, you know you've you've got family who are uh, wearing Air Force blue. Uh, in the combat air forces. Yeah, well, first I have to applaud um, uh, the chief of staff, uh, CQ Brown, um, for doing what you just, just talked about, for making the case, for telling uh, the men and women in his service uh, to be bold, uh, to make decisions, uh, and not to be hindered by um, uh, bureaucracy, and to change that bureaucracy. Unfortunately, there is a huge uh, a frozen middle in the bureaucracy. Our institutions have become enormously large. And quite frankly, since the removal uh, by Secretary Gates of the Chief of Staff of the Air Force and the Secretary of the Air Force simultaneously, that sent a, a absolutely horrible message to not just the Air Force, but to all the service personnel, that you better not speak what you think. You better not speak truth to power because if you don't uh, say what I wanna hear you to say, I'm gonna shoot you in the, in the head. And so we've been trying to overcome 
um, that unfortunate implication, uh, or not so not an unfortunate implication, is the reality of what he did uh, for a long time. And uh, Chief Brown, is, in his proclamations, is, is gone very far to do that. It's going to take a generation to change. Um, I said that a generation ago. Unfortunately, it's going to take another generation. Uh, and uh, and last question. This is the second uh, September. Uh, AFA and certainly celebrating the 75th anniversary of the United States Air Force uh, that uh, Secretary Kendall is, is going to be addressing as uh, secretary. Um, what are some things you think he should be bearing in mind uh, as he as he goes into this event and uh, and messages at it? Because he, too, is somebody who's been driving for change, driving for speed uh, and driving for a more sort of strategic focus uh, by the by the Air Force as one of the most important uh, uh, asymmetric advantages the nation has. Yeah, well, um, you know, Secretary Kendall's to be applauded for uh, instilling some focus on what he wants to see both the Air Force and the Space Force do, and that's through his establishment and focus on his seven operational imperatives. Um, and, and that's great. Um, I would also um, hope that he would reiterate that the Air Force uh, has been asked by the nation and the combatant commanders and the Department of Defense to do much, much more than it has the resources to accomplish. Um, so um, it needs to be adjusted in the context of making up for those 30 years of neglect, which has resulted in both the physical uh, uh, decline in the number of forces as well as the capabilities that we have. So um, he's got a, a lot on his plate to consider, uh, but he's certainly up to the task. Dave, thanks very much. Honor and pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you live and in person uh, next week and would uh, really look forward to having you on as color commentary uh, after uh, three uh, great days uh, and looking forward to seeing you break a leg between now and then. I know you guys are really busy. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Bago. Always very insightful. And you're one of the folks that really get it out there. And so keep up the great work. Thanks very much, uh, Dave. Coming from you, that really, really means a lot. Thanks very much.